Hello, and welcome to the Nightcast Podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire one chapter a week. I am one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Pretty Beefish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 91st episode of the Nauticast titled The Wasteland, an analysis of a Clash King's Aria 5 in which Arya Stark and her companions learn to never trust anyone over 30. It's good to bring that phrase back from the 1960s. I mean, I appreciate that you're writing that for me. This is one of those chapters in A Song of Ice and Fire where you hear like, you know, Fortunate Son or All Along the Watchtower <laughs> in the background the whole time. It's, it's George in full-on anti-Vietnam mode and... That only ramps up as we get to the next couple of Arya chapters, but that's very much the queasy mood we're in. Yes, this uh, this chapter is not going to be a pleasant one. So for you guys who are uh, a little bit squeamish about these things or don't want to uh, hear about all the terrors and horrors visited on children, this chapter may not be the chapter for you guys. But um, we, appreci- we, we appreciate your, you guys listening all the same up to this point. We get the stats all the same. So. <laughs> Thank you so much. Absolutely. So this episode is always brought to you by our small council on Patreon, our Hand of the King Wolfman, Zach, Grand Maester Tim Bob, Lord Commander of the King's Guard, Mark N., Lord Travis, Master of Ships and Warden of the Waves, Sir Keith J., Master of Whisperers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Jancy O., Lady Commander of the Night's Watch, Lord Jean, Master of Coin, Archmaster June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, Warden of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonstone, Scarlet the Other Red Woman, and Mistress of Whispers, Lord Micah, Warden of the West and the Kraken's Bane, Lord James, the Gym that was promised, the Hybrid Priest, the Blue Ringed Otterling, Lord Jacob Sisson, to the Hand of the King, Lady Zena Valyrian, Hedrical, Captain of the Airship Arrogance, His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B., Sir Jasper the Cruel, the King's Justice, Lawrence, Prince of Dorn, Kelly, Warden of the East and Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs, Stephen the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, the Blue Winter Rose, Knight of Highgarden, Lady Stephanie, Lord Ryan, Lord Anonymous, Lord Carlos, Lord Andrew the Restless, a priest of the Drowned God, the King's Cook, Noli Oli, Master of Cannoli, and Sir Sorsadelica. Thank you, counselors, very much. Thank you, counselors, as always. And our spoiler warning, as we say in all episodes, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three Duncan Egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Winsome Sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, the TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from Lady B-Word, our sworn sword riddler, who asks, Hey guys, I'll begin with the confession that I'm super duper behind on my podcast these days. <laughs> who isn't really? But I am on part two of the Red Comet episode, and all of the Stannis-Robert conversation perked a question. Do you think Robert would have willingly used magic to have Rhaegar killed? Stannis being the anti-Robert, I think not. For me, it sounds more like an avenue someone like Tywin would take if the option was available. Curious to hear your thoughts. Loving the podcast, even if I am a slacker listener. So what do you think, Jeff? Would Robert uh, resort to casting magic missile at the darkness when it came to Rhaegar if he had the opportunity? No, absolutely not. I agree with Lady Beaver here. Robert Baratheon loved battle. He loved hitting people. He loved just violence in general. Having him take the shortcut and... You know, casting a shadow baby against Rhaegar Targaryen, the tribe. It's not a Robert move. Robert is the guy who loves to swing his warhammer, man. Like, that's that's who he is. That's the defining aspect of him. As we talked about in our special patron-only episode about Robert Baratheon, like, uh, we, we literally sat, like, face-to-face with each other being like, okay, so what are Robert Baratheon's accomplishments during his reign? Uh, well, there was the the peace with Dorne. Oh, but that was done by John Aaron. Oh, well, there was, um... There was, uh, there was peace in Westeros. Yeah, but that was mostly undone by John Aaron. Oh, wait, the Great Joy Rebellion. Yes, Robert Baratheon was a part of the Great Joy Rebellion. The one singular accomplishment of Robert Baratheon's reign was hitting people. He sure people. did hit that thing so hard. Yes, he would have been a master baseball player is what I'm trying to say. So, <laughs> oh, I can imagine that now you say that and like aging like Babe Ruth in the exact same yes. way. That's the that's the arc. That is the arc right there. And it's just, I mean, Robert is a is a fascinating character in and of himself and watching him go to, go to pot as we see in Ned's chapter. Chapters in the Game of Thrones, especially 
does present him a little more depth than what I'm giving him credit for here. But in terms of casting a spell to kill one of his enemies, no. He's the guy that wants to fight people in single combat. I mean, that's what he was known for in Robert's Rebellion. And it's what seemingly he you know, is basing his reputation, his entire rep on. And it's what George seems to really like about him, as he recently said that and in an October 2019 interview, uh, he was taught with uh, with Eve Ewing. He was talking about how uh, there was like some like John Aaron was like was justified in his rebellion against against Ares II because he had ordered the deaths of children. Oh, but Robert was just interested in killing people because they had taken his girl from him. So I mean, that's that's who Robert Baratheon ultimately is, and that's the guy who's not going to use the spell to kill his enemies. What about, what do you think? I partially agree. I think Robert would definitely prefer. To kill Rhaegar himself, <laughs> but look at what happened with Danny and Viserys. True. Okay, when Robert that's true. when Robert couldn't personally kill them, as he says to Ned, as Ned says to him, you can't get your hands on this one, can you? Uh, when it, when it came to the Targaryens, Robert ultimately resorted to a, a, a coward's weapon, as he put it, even if he did it reluctantly. I think if Rhaegar had somehow Rhaegar wouldn't do this, but if Rhaegar had scrolled himself way to Dragonstone and meant to go into exile and was going to have an army around him, maybe. I think Robert might do what it needed. And you know, characters like Robert and characters like Tywin, they, they don't brush up against the magical world. It's not even that they reject hmm. it. It's that they really don't know it's there or don't take seriously that it's there. So I don't think we really know what they would do if they came up against powers that would change the whole worldview. I mean, would you know from Stannis, just from his backstory, that he would no. team up with the Shadowbinder necessarily? The other thing is we're talking specifically about Shadow Babies. Think about Melisandre for a second and how she mm-hmm. uh, got Stannis on her side. And then think about Robert's sex drive. <laughs> I, Robert might not have a touch for the goth and vampiric the way that Stannis does it's not necessarily his aesthetic Stannis liked red and black to begin with but I feel like Melisandre could possibly work her wiles on Robert if she really felt like it but uh, on the main I agree this would be far from Robert's first choice and I also think he would uh, listen to the people urging him against that route m- more quickly and more deeply than Stannis does I think once John Aaron and Ned said no really loudly to Robert about this I think he would take it more seriously than Stannis does from Crescent and Davos. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I think that Robert does resort to a cowardly deed in order in the assassination of Danny and Viserys back in the Game of Thrones. I, I also think maybe there's a distinction there in that Robert always wants to see himself as like the hero type figure. And do heroes like send others to do the killing for him? I mean, maybe for Robert Baratheon, and he's a quote-unquote hero, yes. But, you know, at Robert Baratheon during Robert's Rebellion time frame, I want to say no. But at the same time, as we'll have this great debate come later in the Clash of Kings about whether Stannis was really aware of what Melisandre was doing, it could be that Melisandre could be like, I will just make this dis- this problem disappear for you. That's also a very prominent theme in Robert's you know, story. Like, he just doesn't really care about the realm, just ensures that people, just wants people to love him, and that's basically all that he's he's really worth, ultimately, as a ruler and king. There's also the faceless men route. Like, I could see if, again, this is not in character, if John Aaron wanted to hire a faceless men to kill an exiled Rhaegar, that he could talk Robert into not really thinking of it as magic, because the faceless men don't advertise all that they can do, certainly, as we learn in <laughs> Feast and Dance. And they, they, they have a somewhat secular face oriented towards the world. But, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting question. Uh, but given that Rhaegar was always more martial inclined than Viserys, I think they were always ultimately going to meet in combat. Rhaegar decided very deliberately that he would be a warrior. And in that way, perhaps he sealed his fate to meet Robert in personal battle. So thank you, Lady Beaver, for the question. If you'd like to ask us questions that we'll answer here on the Nauticast podcast, you're welcome to subscribe as a sworn sword or higher level patron at patreon.com slash Nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F. Absolutely, and thank you to all of our patrons for supporting us. But enough about Patreon, on to Arya's fifth chapter in Clash of Kings. When we last checked in with Arya, she had just escaped the fiery horror of the Lannisters. Let's hope she doesn't encounter any more Lannisters than this. 
<laughs> You're already shaking your head at me. In this synopsis of A Clash of Kings, Arya 5. At the top of a tree, Arya looks at a nearby village near a small stream and a pier. And unlike all the other places of former human occupation, this village appears to have people in it, as smoke is rising from some of the chimneys. But wait, why has every other place they visited been empty? Question mark. All the other places they come upon have been empty and desolate. Farms, villages, castles, seps, barns, and made no matter. If it could burn, the Lannisters had burned it. If it could die, they killed it. They'd even set the woods ablaze when they could, though the leaves were still green and wet from recent rains, and the fires had not spread. Well, it's just your usual war conduct, guys. We can't impart our modern moral values into this. Oh, wait, only immoral toes believe this. Fuck the Lannisters. Gendry thinks that the Lannisters would have burned the lake if they could, which, yeah, lick a fire. You wonder if George is communicating something about the Lannisters with this imagery from the Book of Revelations? <clears throat> All the same, Arya knows that Gendry is right. The Lannisters had burned the town by the lake they had escaped from back in Arya 4. Arya flashes back to right after the battle. Now her and her companions had crept back into the town only to find blackened houses and corpses. Lamy had warned them that they shouldn't return to the town and that Amrylor should be waiting for them to kill them. But thankfully, Amry was long gone. They'd arrived back at the holdfast they defended from Lancer scum and they see horrors awaiting them. One look was enough for Gendry. They're killed. Everyone. And dogs have been at them too. Or wolves. Dogs, wolves, it makes no matter. It's done here. But Arya's not about to leap before seeing if Yor made it out alive. They couldn't have killed him. He was too hard to kill. Oh, honey. The axe blow that had killed him had split his skull apart, but the great tangled beard could be no one else's, or the garb, patched and unwashed, and so faded it was more gray than black. Moment of silence for Yorn, a true man of the Night's Watch, and our archetypal forebear to Brienne. No chance and no choice. All right. Arya notices that dead Lannisters and Night's Watch recruits have been left out alike. Amory really didn't give a shit about anything, but Arya sees that four Lannister redcloaks lay dead around Yorm. So he hadn't gone down without a hollow of a fight, and Arya is feeling things. He was going to take me home, Arya thought as they dug the old man's hole. He was going to bring me safe to Winterfell. He promised. Part of her wanted to cry. The other part wanted to kick him. Gendry says that they should head out of the guard tower as Yorn had left three recruits up there. When they arrive, they see that the Lannisters couldn't get into the tower and they couldn't burn the tower either. Thankfully, for the moment anyways, they find Kurz, Cutjack, and Tarver still alive in the tower, though Kurz isn't doing so hot having taken a wound during the battle. Back up at the tree, Arya considers whether they should approach the town. The town might have warmth and provide shelter, but it might also have Sir Amory Lorch in it. The problem is that Arya is too far away to really make out anything, though she does hear a whinny of a horse at one point. But maybe there's a hint of who's in the town. The air was full of birds, crows mostly. From afar, they were no larger than flies as they wheeled and flapped above the thatched roofs. To the east, God's eye was shimmering and this lake almost called to Arya, but she didn't dare go and bathe in it for fear of revealing herself to be a girl. So she dangled her feet into the water on some days on the walk, and though she'd been going barefoot for a while, her feet had hardened from calces, but the water and the mud still felt good on her toes. Arya sees a small wooded isle on the lake and watches as three black swans fly over the lake. She thinks she'd like to be a swan, but maybe she'd like to eat the swans instead. Of late, her diet consisted of a disgusting acorn paste that Kurz taught them how to make, along with worms and bugs they found on the ground. She didn't mind the bugs so much as she used to eat them back in the day to make Sansa scream, but the worms weren't great. Her companions, the crying girl, now named Weasel by Lamy and Hot Pie, threw up when they tried the worms, and Gendry and Lamy didn't even try them. Speaking of Kurz, he had died recently from an arrow to the knee, no shoulder. They buried him under a mound of stones. Kutjap claimed his sword and horn, Tarber got his boots. And when they'd gotten the body, they left the kids behind that night, probably thinking they'd survive without a, quote, gaggle of orphan boys. Arya thinks, yeah, they probably would survive, but she still hates that they left. 
Below the tree, Hot Pie makes a dog call, and Arya gets down from the tree to find Hot Pie, Gendry, Weasel, and Lamy waiting for her. She reports that a fishing village is ahead, and that someone is there. Weasel runs up and grabs Arya's leg, and Hot Pie says they should go check it out. The people there will give them food, right? Maybe they kill us too, Gendry says. Well, not if we yielded, Hot Pie said, hopefully. Gendry dismisses Hot Pie as sending like Lamy, and speaking of Lamy, well... Kind of like hers, he ain't doing so hot. He'd taken a spear wound to the leg, and he was able to walk for the first day, but by the second, he was limping with help. By the third day, he had to be carried. Lamy states, in what will be a refrain for this entire goddamn chapter, that they need to yield, as that's what Yoren would have done, should have done. Gonna have to disagree with your assessment there, Lamy, and Arya disagrees too. She's sick of hearing him bitch. But Hot Pie thinks that Amory would have spared everyone. He even said so. Would a Lannister Bannerman lie, I ask you? Have the Lannisters ever operated in bad faith? No, I didn't think so. But Gendry disagrees correctly. Knights and lordlings, they take each other captive and pay ransoms. But they don't care if the likes of you yield or not. Hot Pie says they probably have fish to sell in the village, but Arya's not sure about that. She saw the crows and thinks something is dead in or near the water. Hot Pie thinks it's fish. And Lamy says, let's go roast those crows like chickens and eat them. But Gendry says, no fires. Everyone's hungry, complaining and bickering. and But finally, Gendry silences everyone. He needs to think. Lamy tells him to yield, but Gendry only tells him to shut the fuck up about yielding. Lamy, come on, man. Having scrunched up his face a bit and had to think to himself, Gendry decides that he needs to go scout out the village and figure out what's actually down there when the sun is setting. But Arya says she'll go. Gendry is too big and noisy. So Gendry decides that they're both going to go. But if you can't come back, Hot Pie can't care to be by himself. You know he can't, Lamy complains. And there's wolves, Hot Pie says. I heard them last night when I had the watch. They sounded close. Arya was aware of the wolves too. She was sleeping in a tree when she was woken by them, howling for an hour the night before. Hot Pie complains about not having a fire and that they'll leave him, but Gendry insists they're totally not going to pull a cut jack and tarbor on them. They're just going to have a look around. Lamy, if you can believe it, states that they should yield. <laughs> oh my god. And if they see any leg potion, they should bring some back for him. And that strangely, kind of strangely, Gendry says that he'll pick some up if he sees any. And I really don't get the sense that Gendry's being sarcastic here. But they need to get going. Also, Hot Pie, you need to keep Weasel in place so the girl doesn't follow them into the village. With that, Arya and Gendry head off with Gendry's long strides outpacing Arya's shorter strides. But then Gendry stops. I think Lamy's going to die. Arya, well, she isn't surprised by this. Kurz was a bigger, stronger guy, and he died from his wound. So how's a kid like Lamy going to survive an even worse wound? Besides, whenever Arya carried Lamy, she knows that his wound was smelling gangrenous and his skin was hot to the touch. Arya thinks they need to find a maester, but, well, Gendry knows better. Maesters are only in castles, and they wouldn't help some peasant like Lamy. Arya gets all shocked and offended, thinking that Lewin would help anyone, but Gendry insists again that Lamy's going to die and that they need to leave him and the others behind. They're the only two capable ones in the party, even if you're a girl. Arya freezes and states very, very loudly that she's not a girl, but Gendry knows better. He didn't notice it when they were 30 strong, but now with just a few survivors, well, Gendry has kept receipts. For instance, he's noticed that Arya never takes a leak in public. She always goes out by herself. When Arya continues to protest, Gendry demands that she pull her cock out and show it to him. Arya refuses, saying that she doesn't know that she doesn't need to go piss now. To try to distract from her lack of penis, she says that Gendry is hiding something too. Why the gold cloaks are after him, for instance, and he won't tell anyone why. I wish I knew. I think you're new, but he never told me. Why'd you think they were after you, though? Arya bit her lip. She remembered what Yorn had said the day he'd hacked off her hair. The slot of them. They would turn you over to the queen, quick as a spit for a pardon and maybe a, sil a few silvers. The other half do the same. Only they'd rape you first. Only Gendry was different. The queen wanted him too. 
Arya says she'll show him hers if she'll, um, well, maybe they need, maybe need to work with that line. She says that maybe they do an information swap, but truly Gendry doesn't know. So Arya is faced with a decision. She can maybe kill Gendry with Needle, but that was no sure thing. Gendry was big and strong. The subtext, ah, the subtext, we'll get to that. So Arya decides to tell him the truth, with the condition that he can't tell Lamy and Hot Pie. Gendry agrees. Arya, she raises eyes to his. My name is Arya of House Stark. Gendry goes white-eyed, saying, well, that was the name of the king, the one they killed for treason. But Arya says he wasn't a traitor. Ned Stark was her father. Yorin was taking her back to Winterfell. That's why she was here. I, you're, you're highborn then? A, you'll, you'll be a lady, Gendry says. Arya looks at herself and thinks that no one would call her a lady if they saw what she looked like now. She says that her mom is a lady, and her sister Sansa was a lady too. But she never was. Yes, you were. You were a lord's daughter and you lived in a castle, didn't you? And you... Gods, be good, I never. All of a sudden, Gendry seemed uncertain, almost afraid. All that talk about cocks. I, I should have never said that. And I've been pissing in front of you and everything. I, I, I beg your pardon, my lady. Arya hisses at him to stop, wondering if he's teasing her. But Gendry gets stubborn, saying that he knows his courtesies, my lady. Arya warns Gendry that if he says my lady in front of the others, they're going to fucking know that she's a girl. As my lady commands. Arya slammed his chest with both hands. He tripped over a stone and sat down with a thumb. <laughs> what kind of a lord's daughter are you, he said, laughing. This kind. She kicked him in the side, but it only made him laugh harder. But now the need to get to the village is scattered up. They arrive as the sun is about to set, and Gendry smells what he thinks is rotten fish, but, well, Arya knows better. They decide to split up with Arya going east and Gendry going west. Arya last sees Gendry thinking hard. He's probably thinking he shouldn't be letting Milady go steal food. Arya just knew he was going to be stupid now. Arya closes in on the village, and the bad smell, again, not fish, grows worse. She slips through the, br- the bushes, stopping to listen each time as she gets closer, and the smell only grows worse. Dead man stink. That's what that is. She had smelled it before with Yorin and the others. South of the village, Arya finds a, quote, thicket of brambles, and she gets through a hedge, finds a hole, and looks at the village from up close, and it's just your lovely, normal, everyday litany of fucking Lannister war crimes. <sighs> Beside the gently lapping waters of God's eye, a long gibbet of raw green wood had been thrown up, and things that had once been men dangled there, their feet in chains, while crows pecked at their flesh and flapped from corpse to corpse. For every crow, there was a hundred flies. It's a goddamn feast for crows, two books early. The wind coming off the lake twists the remains of one of the corpses in his chains, the one with the face mostly eaten off by crows, and the horrors, well, they don't end there. The crows and probably the wolves have been at the corpses. She made herself look at the next man, and the one beyond him, and the one beyond him, telling herself that she was hard as a stone. Corpses all so savage and decay that it took her a moment to realize that they had been stripped before they were hanged. There were six corpses in total, and Arya reminds herself of Cyril Farrell's fear cuts deeper than swords or frame. The dead men couldn't hurt her. The people who had got those men dead could hurt her, though. Arya sees two goons and male halberds standing guard with two poles for standards that have been placed in the ground. Arya can't quite make out the banner, seeing maybe a white or yellow one, and another one that's probably red. She figures the red one for Lannister Crimson. I don't need to see the lion. I could seal the dead people. Who else could it have been but the Lannisters, Arya thinks. Suddenly, there's a shout, and Arya sees that the Lannisters have a captive. She can't quite make out who it is at first, but then she notices that this idiot is wearing a bull's head helmet. Oh shit, it's fucking Gendry. You stupid, 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 she thought. If he'd been here, she would have kicked him again. 
Are you witnesses to the Lancers doing some, shall we say, enhanced interrogation of Gendry by asking him questions and beating him when he doesn't give the answers that they want? One of the guards takes the helmet off Gendry and starts wearing it himself. Then they drag Gendry to a storehouse and toss him inside. But as soon as the door is opened, a little boy runs out. He's immediately tossed back in the storeroom. And this next quotation goes out to every Tywin fanboy in this fucking fandom. Arya heard sobbing from inside the building, and then a shriek so loud and full of pain that it made her bite her lip. Fuck you, Tywin Lannister. A gust of wind comes up and lifts the banners. Turns out the one is Lannister Crimson, as Arya had already known, and the other is yellow with three strange shapes running across the field. Arya had seen this sigil before, but she can't quite place it. But for now, she can't think about that. She needs to bust Gendry out of Lannister jail, even if he was an idiot. She observes for a while, noting the change of the guards, that the Lannisters bring back a deer. They skin the deer and cook it. Arya thinks the smells of dead men and roasted beer mingle queerly in her nose, but she gets a good vantage point of everyone that the Lannisters have in this village. She thinks she might spring Gendry when it gets truly dark, but night only brings a changing of the guard. So, she withdraws. Arya picks her way silently through the woods with God's eye to her left. She hears the howling of wolves, but then she comes across Lamy and Hot Pie still, still waiting around for her. Weasel comes up and hugs her leg. Lamy asks where Gendry is, and Arya reports that the Lannisters have him, and they need to go rescue him. But the boys ain't about that, especially factoring that there's 20 soldiers in the village, as Arya reports. You don't need to fight one. I'll do the other, and we'll get Gendry out and run. We should yield, Lamy said. Just go in and yield. <sighs> but Arya refuses. She's not going to leave Gendry behind, even if Lamy wants to. They need Gendry to help carry Lamy, so Arya puts the question to Hot Pie. You gonna come kill a dude with me? Well, Hot Pie isn't sure at first, but he finally agrees. So Arya and Hot Pie head off, but not before telling Weasel to stay with Lamy. But Lamy has a question. What if the wolves come? Yield, Arya suggested. <laughs> Love it. It takes a long time for Arya, Hot Pie, and Arya to make it back their way back north, but they finally make their way to the brambles and catch side of the village. Arya warns Hot Pie that there's corpses hanging, but don't be scared of them. They just need to move in quiet and slow. They crawl through the briar patch and begin crawling under the gibbet. Unfortunately, one of the crows lands on Hot Pie's back and he gasps, leading to one of the guards to ask who's there. Hot Pie leapt to his, leapt to his feet. I yield! I yield! He throws his sword away as the birds shriek around him. Arya tries to drag him back, but Hot Pie gets free and runs, shouting that he yields. Arya leaps to her feet, needle in hand, but then all the Lancers are all around her. She tries swinging her sword, but then someone takes the sword away from her, and then the same Lancer war criminal punches her in the face. On the ground and probably concussed, Arya feels voices over her, and though she's hurt, the emotional pain is worse. They took needle. The shame of that hurt worse than the pain, that the pain hurt a lot. John had given her that sword. Sirio had taught her how to use it. Another Lancer war criminal jerk yanks her to her knees and Arya sees a monster standing over Hot Pie. Three black dogs raced across his faded yellow surcoat and his face looked as hard as if it had been cut from stone. Suddenly Arya knows where she had seen those dogs before. At the turn of the hand, Sansa had pointed out all the sigils and identified one as belonging to Sandra Clegane's older brother, a man larger than Hodor, Gregor Clegane, the mountain that rides. Arya, Arya's head falls as she hears the mountain tell Hot Pie that he needs to take some into the others. Arya is led away from the village with four Lancer soldiers back to Lamy, who immediately, of course, yields. One of the Lancers asks where the girl is, and Lamy states that the girl fled when she heard people coming. Run, Weasel, Arya thought. Run as far as you can. Run and hide and never come back. One idiot asks where Beric Dondarrion is, and Lamy's like, fucking who? Disappointed in their inability to bring more horror on the one hero in Westeros, a Lannister spearman walks over to Lamy. Something wrong with your leg, boy. It got hurt. Can you walk? He sounded concerned. No, said Lamy. You gotta carry me. Think so. The man lifted his spear casually. 
and drove the point through the boy's soft throat. Lamy never even had time to yield again. The man, wrath as sweetly as we'll find out later, chuckles. Carry him, he says. And that is a Clash of Kings, Aria 5. Well, I'm officially hot, Emmett. It, it takes a lot for me to get angry, as people have said. But there I was finishing the synopsis back near midnight on Friday, November 29th. And I was hot. And I, I still am, you know. I just, ugh. Fuck the Lancers, fuck Tywin, fuck Gregor Clean, fuck Amory Lorch, hell, fuck Tyrion. I believe they called this war, Lancer 2. <laughs> fuck them all. Fuck all of them. Well, I'm glad you can still feel things, Jeff, because coming out of this chapter, I'm just like numb. Like I've just been dropped into a black hole of despair. <laughs> it's like the, the Edward Gorey, the artist, did like those... Those set of like uh, horrible like uh, children's uh, like alphabet stories like you know A is for Annabelle who died of some horrible thing and the N one oh, is nice. N is for Neville who died of ennui and it's just a little boy staring out the window <laughs> like that's how I feel after reading this chapter it's just so bleak and so grim in the best way possible in, in an appropriate way as we said about mm-hmm. the kind of the unpleasant bits of Sansa's uh, second chapter last week this chapter is where you really see how well Arya's storyline in A Clash of Kings works in context with all the rest. Of the four chapters since last we saw Arya, we spent three in King's Landing, with the fourth in Winterfell, the Game of Thrones being played at the highest of levels, the two capitals of Westeros, even as some POVs have more access to the levers of power than others. And now, we're back in the shit, back in the muck, back in the turbulent, blood-soaked sediment of war with Arya underfoot and her dwindling band of war orphans. The contrast just could not be stronger. The powerlessness and helpless, wretched injustice throughout this chapter works so effectively to undercut the pretensions of the storylines taking place at the top. As much fun as we have dissecting the political infighting in, in Brand 2 and Tyrion 4, it's all in the context of the Westeros that the Stark-Lannister War is creating. You gotta ask yourself, what worth Sir Dantos's protestations of chivalry in Sansa 2, when this is what the real anointed knights like Sir Gregor Clegane and Sir Amory Lorch are up to in the Riverlands? Yeah, I absolutely agree. I mean, the only two saving graces among the, quote, anointed knights are Barrett and Darien, who's actively helping the small folk, and Edmure Tully, who, I guess he gave his leave to some of his overlords to go home to defend themselves against Lannister marauders. But that that's it. Everyone, our villainous Tywins, Tyrions, and Cerseys, and our heroic Rob Starks and Brenda Tullys, they're all playing the Game of Thrones while the people die or are relegated to horrors. I mean, this, this chapter is horrible it's not a pleasant chapter like like you said it's 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 a well-written chapter it, it works as both a mid-season cliffhanger and a culmination of the first half of Arya's clash story it also vaults Arya's coming Harrenhal arc forward but there was a there's a line that, that that stuck out to me on this reread you know when the Lancers bring back the deer back to the village and they're cooking it and Arya's smelling the things coming together and she has this line the smell of cooking meat mingled queerly with the stench of corruption Good word choice, George. That's that's really good. That stench of corruption, that smell of meat and corpses fusing together, it's visceral, it's horrible. And that's what the Game of Thrones has brought to Westeros. To, to paraphrase Aerys II, let Joffrey, Rob, Renly, Stannis, Balin be king of cooked meat and charred bones. Or more succinctly, like he, I think this this reference would be appeal right up your alley. Would I believe this reference would go right up your alley? As your boy Emmett, as, <laughs> as your boy Emmett, as your boy, you're on crystallizes the sentiment in Feast for Crows. Men are meat. I'm so glad you brought that up. That stood out to me too. Is this this wonderful bit of imagery that it's it's not just corruption; it's also the smell of cooking meat, the positive smell, the smell of 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 you know, hearth and home and having a full belly for once, that smell is being ruined by the stench of corruption. And it's, it's, you, you get this, this great sense of 
all of Westeros is rotting. And all mm. if 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 men are meat to use Euron's formulation, and all of Westeros is rotting meat, then by the power of the transitive property, you could say that all men in Westeros are rotting meat. Everyone is rotting from within, and that's the sense you get from this chapter. That not just the physical danger, but the sense of rot from within, of moral rot, of losing losing your humanity. That's everywhere here. And yeah, you, you have the, one extreme. You have characters like Eris the Second or Euron who. While more competent than Harris the Second, they still both just <laughs> they just utterly unabashedly bathe themselves in this stuff. They just want to rise to Valhalla on a sea of corpses, and everyone else is stuck in the middle with the sense of the two stenches coming together and everything you wanted to believe in kind of giving way to death. And that's that's what Arya is dealing with in this chapter. Right at the end of Arya Four, right, she was left crying as it all came crashing down on her, literally and figuratively. And as this chapter opens, her her tears have dried, and she has to face the aftermath and keep living. And I love how this chapter is structured in that the first chunk is devoted to a flashback to Arya going into the village that morning after the battle. It doesn't start the morning after the battle. It starts with Arya and her small folk companions looking out at this, at this little village where Gregor's men turn out to be. And the advantage of that is right before we flash back to the village, Arya delivers this line that runs under everything that happens in the rest of the chapter. If it could burn, the Lannisters had burned it. If it could die, the Lannisters had killed it. And that just sums it all up. We have entered the state of total war. And George will go hard on the psychological as well as geographical effects of that in Arya's next chapter. And again, the politics, the specific politics that are creating this situation just seem to crumble in the rearview mirror, just paling next to the realities Arya and her companions are now facing. Even the Lannisters, they aren't framed as like dangerous opponents, the other side of the chessboard. They don't even feel like an army of men in these Arya chapters. Mm-hmm. They feel like a swarm of locusts, like a plague that's just happening to Arya and the Riverlands writ large. Yeah, they really do feel like an inhuman force. And I think that inhumanity, that lack of humanity that we're seeing here, that's intentional in George's part. That I think you brought up with the ball. It's a swarm of locusts. And again, like you talked about the chessboard analogy. What is the strategic or tactical advantage of what Gregor Kilgain or Amory Lorch are doing at this point? You know, we, we hear, heard back back in Catelyn's first chapter from the Clash of Kings that Edmure Tully has dispatched some of his river lords back to their castles. And Rob, well, he's not marching on Harrenhal from River Run. That's been established. Is Tywin still trying to bait Rob into marching on Harrenhal? It's, it seems unlikely at this point. So any tactical or strategic advantage has already been accomplished by the Lancers. As horrific and as amoral and immoral as what the Lancers are doing, they're not doing anything but just continuing atrocities and and why what what's going on and i think honestly it's personal on timon's part it's as personal as him second king's landing after the city peacefully opened its gates to him during robert's rebellion it's timon lannister again as we've talked about over and over again satiating his personal grievance against at being outwitted and outsmarted by rob stark by slaughtering peasants and bringing more peasants into slavery. This is this is extraordinarily personal and extraordinarily immoral and evil, and it just makes my blood boil inside. The way the lords like to think about this, and the way powerful people in every society, including our own, like to think about this, <laughs> is the peasants just don't get it. They have a very limited worldview. They're down on the ground. They don't understand the complexities and the nuances and subtleties of how one keeps power in this difficult, dangerous world. But by constructing it this way, by constructing Tywin's grand war effort as self-sabotaging, as futile and destructive as you say it is, George is revealing that, no, the peasant perspective is actually closer to the truth. The total destruction they're seeing is an accurate portrait of the war, and the machinations of someone like Tyrion is just arranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. That's not actually as significant as he likes to think it is, and that's a very important point that George is making. 
And it, it, of course, the scope, though, is limited so much when we're talking about these Arya chapters compared to those Tyrion chapters or Catalan chapters. Agonizingly limited. The world is so small. Like, Team Underfoot isn't really trying to get to Winterfell or the Wall anymore. And they're, they're not trying, they're not like Beric Dondarrion's daring irregulars where they're going to go off and sabotage the enemy even though they're outnumbered and, you know, uh, out-resourced. They are just trying to survive another day. They are crawling along this map inch by inch, their existence reduced to whether they should steal food or simply beg for it. And as with our last Arya V, a Game of Thrones Arya V, when she was down in the streets of Flea Bottom, George's focus is on how hunger hollows you out. It hmm. flattens your mental state, it aggravates your emotional state, it turns every conversation into this exhausting circular grind about yielding and waiting and eating. And it's just every conversation in this chapter between these kids is is uncomfortable and annoying and repetitive, deliberately so, to express because it's just, what do we do? We need to get food. How do we get food? We should have yielded. What do we do? We need to get food. How do we get food? We should have yielded. Compare it to like these <laughs> intricate dialogue scenes in the Tyrion chapters where everyone's concealing more than they're revealing and everyone has three <laughs> layers they're working on. And then you get out of that chapter and you get to this of just, what do we do? Where do we go? How do we get food? We should have yielded. It's it's circular and and awful because this is how it feels to starve to death. This is what's happening yeah. to these kids' brains. It's just everything is a descent. And obviously these kids have done nothing to deserve this, but really no one, I think, deserves this. This is torment. This is not a crucible that makes you stronger. This is not how you prove yourself. This just melts the humanity like flesh off your bones, as we see throughout this chapter. Hunger may be the single most powerful of motivations, and it is not an ennobling one. Like even even before the road grinds them down, the, the the tone is set by the remains of the village. Everything is destroyed. Almost everyone is dead, and they're just lying there unburied. Even the Lannister men, and Amory's callousness towards even his own, leaving them unburied to rot again, cements the Lannister army as being something above and beyond the normal conduct of soldiers. Like the 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 point that Jamie makes that you brought up before about when he's talking about Steel Shanks Walton and how yeah this this guy. You know, he'll go to war, he'll do what his lord commands, but he'll go home and just, you know, raise turnips and sons when the war is done. He's not like the brave companions. He makes that distinction. And Amory's crew is clearly on the wrong side of that distinction. <laughs> and he's he's inculcated this nightmarish image of himself in these kids' heads. They think of him now as like this, you know, this manticore that just crawled to life and started killing people. Hot Pie's begging them not to go. Lamry swears that Amory will kill them next. Even Gendry, who's, you know, he's bullheaded. He's generally pretty tough and stubborn. <laughs> Even he wants to turn back as soon as he sees the state of things in the village. He knows what happened. But Arya, Arya has to see for herself. And so she, she sees the unimaginable. She sees Yorn with his, his face just split open. And right before she finds that body, she's telling Gendry about they couldn't have killed him. He's tough as nails. And besides, he's a brother of the Night's Watch, even though that didn't stop them from attacking in the first place. Mm-hmm. One last time, in the face of all the norms of Westeros and the dreams of her childhood, wilting like the wheat left to rot in the fields... Arya just asserts Yorn's belief that his black cloak meant something, that the watch takes no part, that you gotta clap for the realm to be real. And Yorn could make her look away from Ned's death, but he's not around anymore to make her look away from his. He held Arya's last fragment of innocence in his hands, and he, it died with him. Even though he went a hero to the end, like he, Arya points out, wow, there were four bodies next to him. Imagine how many it must have taken to take him down. That's so heartbreaking, she still wants to think about it that way. Like, that's her equivalent of Sansa being like, oh, I still want to believe in Florian and Jonquil. Arya and Sansa liked different songs, but they're still both clinging to them because they need them as an organizing principle to make sense of these horrors. And I love how it's just the perfect opposite 
of Serio. Like, Serio, we got to see the amazing, flamboyant, badass last stand, and George cut away right before the bloodletting, right before he went down, right before he lost the limbs and then his life. With Yorin, it's the complete inverse. We know that Yorin, you know, threw himself into 24 howling Lannister soldiers and gave them a night they'll never forget, but we don't get to see it. What we see is his face split open. What we see is the, the bodies left there to rot. We see the aftermath. And so Arya is caught in between. She like like Sansa, again, she can't fully abandon childhood and she can't fully enter adulthood. She can't process it properly. And that's why she's so caught in between about Yorin. That she she wants to mourn, but she needs to hate him. In the same way that the the uh, Desmond, the soldier in King's Landing at the Tower of the Hand, the one who promised her that any northerner could take down ten Southron swords, and she finds him only having killed one, and she kicks his body and yells, "You liar!" It's that same sentiment here. She 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 misses him so badly, but the only way she can think to deal with it is to blame him for his own death. Yeah, that, that anger and sadness is powerful stuff for a, for a kid. It's powerful stuff for Arya. Powerful stuff for me. I mean, I lost my dad when I was a you know, six-year-old kid, and that's that was hard for me. I, I couldn't really process as as a child, and you just don't have the the mental f- faculties that are there necessarily to do it. A lot of people can't do it as as adults either. It's it's a really hard thing to deal with. You know, I kind of I, I do wonder whether both with Desmond as well as with more with Yorn, whether George may be playing off his own feelings, maybe about the death of his father, uh, Raymond Martin, who died in 1975. But it's it's kind of a universal thing. I think like when when you lose a parent or a parental figure in the form of of Yorin, that's that's it's hard, especially when that parental figure dies in the kind of last vestiges of the society that Arya had grown up around. I mean, as as much as we want to separate Arya out from Sansa in terms of the types of girls that they are, uh, Arya was protected by society by this noble society that essentially acted on on her behalf in the same way that it acted on Sansa's behalf. But the Night's Watch vows and the Black Cloak, now Grey, of course, has been didn't protect Yorn. It didn't protect him from Amory's attack. And it didn't protect him ultimately. And him being a total fucking badass didn't protect him from the fact that he was going up against 200 Lannister guys. I mean, that's the odds are not in his favor. And it turned out it was ultimately not in his favor too. And that leads to a lot of different emotions in Arya, and it makes sense. George writes the emotions of a kid who doesn't know how to process grief well. I relate. I, I really do, and that's... It's good. Again, as I often say, it's good writing on George's part. When when you're able to talk about the different ways that you look at a hard thing in your life and the way that you process emotions as a kid, Arya writes a... <laughs> Arya. George writes a nine-year-old kid's reactions really, really well. This is, after all, the, the major death in the first half or so of A Clash of Kings up until Renly, and I think George handles it great in terms of lingering in the aftermath and dealing with Arya's complicated emotions. And when you think about it in terms of the genre, you know, we talk, George gets talked about it as a deconstructionist or taking apart tropes. And sometimes people talk like he's ripping up everything in his path when sometimes all you need to do to tweak something is change one element or just change the structure. Like when you think about the death of the mentor in fantasy, what happens right after the mentor dies? What happens right after Obi-Wan dies? Luke is immediately whisked away to Yavin, to the home of the rebellion. Suddenly he's surrounded by a whole crew of people who are taking care of him and want to help him and use his skills to fight the enemy. What happens right after Gandalf dies in Lord of the Rings? Frodo is immediately whisked away to Lothlorien where there's a bunch of people with interesting ideas and skills and he can rest and (laughs) recuperate. That's what you do after the mentor dies because that's what the hero needs in order to integrate what it means that the mentor dies. Oh, I have to now step into his place and become an adult coming of age, blah, 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 blah. We all know this structure. But what makes it great here is that George doesn't let that happen to Arya. Arya, George forces Arya to stay there and walk 
and starve hmm. and she doesn't get that structure to help her process and even when she gets a version of that structure it's Jock and Hagar saying can I murder someone for you please Arya <laughs> it doesn't help and Heron Hall is no Yavin 4 or Lothlorien it's the exact opposite it's those places turned inside out into a horrible charnel house and she doesn't get the recuperation she needs you know and, and George took away the mentor figures she took away Tarber and Cutjack the two adults who could have been there that could have mentored and molded Arya into dealing with grief and being like okay here's where we go from this point forward and said like you said he gives her Jack and Hagar and Rorge and Biter those those are her mentor figures for the rest of the Clash of Kings all the horrified and terrified peasants who have been brutalized by, by the Lancers in the Riverlands the, these are the people that are, that are the adults that Arya's thrust into so taking away one portion of the manner of the aftermath of the loss of a figure really creates a better story and creates a more interesting story for Arya and for us as readers as we're, as we're interacting with the material. Arya's left spinning with no support. And the, yeah, that last layer of adults, they don't even merit a goodbye. Tarber and Kutchak and Kurz, they bleed out and vanish in the flashbacks. And Arya keeps going, hating them, but barely surprised at this point. And it's easy to forget about Tarber and Kutchak and Kurz, their tertiary characters at best, but it, the sheer simplicity and swiftness of this particular evil, that's what makes it haunt me. In, in direct contrast to how we linger over Yorin, this just happens so quickly. Mm-hmm. And by the time you realize what it is Arya is describing, it's over and she's moved on. They are at first the one silver lining to the battle's cloud. These three remaining adults left unscathed who can maybe maybe complete the quest and get the princess back to her castle. Cutjack opened the door at Gendry's shout, and when Kurz said they'd be better pressing on north than going back, Arya had clung to the hope that she still might reach Winterfell. Yorn's death didn't necessarily destroy the dream. This is what destroys the dream. When George's favorite twin threats come into play. Unfortunate fate and the callousness of desperate men. Kurz manages to pass on just a little knowledge before he dies, enough to allow the kids to scrape by on acorn paste and animal calls, but not enough to get them to safety. And you get this horrible sense that he was the only one insisting on taking the kids along. And Tarber and Kutchak had no choice but to go along with that because they were depending on his skills to get them to safety. So when he dies, Tarber and Kutchak strip him for supplies and abandon the kids to starve, not even with the tools to help them survive. A slow death with no dignity and no hope. Can you imagine what those kids felt as they slowly realized that Tarber and Kutchak weren't coming back? As the sand drifts away and you feel like the last shred of your sanity and connection to humanity just dying on you. It's so cruel. And yet you know decisions like this are being made all across the Riverlands right now. It's not like the Baroque theatrical cruelty employed by Tywin's pet monsters, which is deliberately designed to stand out as over the top. This is the sort of cold calculation you can imagine otherwise average people making. This is the kind that's often the focus of apocalypse slash zombie stories where it's like, who counts? Who survives? Who's going to make best use of our limited resources? And there's overall a statement about what the Civil War is doing to Westeros. Again, at a level that is not accessed by the specific ideological reasons this faction is doing it or this faction is doing it. Beyond all that, war empowers the bad, corrupts the average, and grinds the truly bone-deep good people down to said bones. Look no further than Beric Dondarrion for hmm. proof of that. And the sad truth is that no one is immune. Even if you're a good person to start with, you, you get swept up in this machine. This same crisis recreates itself on a smaller and smaller scale. It applied to Tarber and Kutchak, but then it applies after them to Gendry. There's that horrible little sequence where Gendry tells Arya, yeah, Lamy's going to die and he should hurry it up already. Because he's, he's slowing us down and Weasel's slowing us down and Hop High's slowing us down. And you realize, oh god, Gendry thinks they were right. Gendry thinks the adults were right to leave them and that they in turn need to leave the younger kids. 
Uh, Arya hates the adults for abandoning them, and rightly so, but Gendry is becoming swayed by their remorseless logic and just passes it on. Why should they all die instead of just Lamy? Is Lamy going to get us all killed, and don't we have a responsibility to leave him behind? The rejoinder, which Arya kind of tries to express but really can't, is that if you sell your soul to survive the war, you will have lost that which you were trying to survive in the first place. Your humanity is gone. Who would Arya and Gendry be on the other side of abandoning Lamy like they were abandoned? Because down that road lies Amory, Lorch, and Gregor Clegane. That's who you turn into. Yeah. I mean, we're getting some early flashes of Davos's and Stannis's interaction from A Storm of Swords. What is the life of one bastard boy? Whether it's Lamy, whether it's Hot Pie, whether it's Weasel, whether it's Edric Storm, against a kingdom, against survival. Everything Davos said softly. And Arya, Davos is being a little bit more morally clear than Arya is, where Arya is just more like, stupid, we're not going to leave them behind. But I mean, it's also this thing, like reducing life to a numbers game or that sheer moral Darwinism of the strong are the only ones that are worth surviving. We're left with the end state of innocence and children dying. That's what happens when you embrace this mentality that the men have embraced and that Gendry is kind of a little bit kind of playing with. Maybe we should, maybe we should. It's okay. We could do it, right? No? Okay, fine. We guess we won't do it right now. Maybe a little bit later on. And this is where, quote, true knights, you know, true knights are needed most. Sasa's later reflection that knights are sworn to defend the weak, protect women, and fight for the right but none of them did a thing applies. Of course, Sansa is talking about when Joffrey is ordering his king's guard in quotation marks to beat her. But it applies here in, in Arya's chapter, like swap out the word knight with adult. Exactly. Are the fucking adults there to defend the weak, protect the women and fight for the right. But none of them did a thing. Tarber, Kutchak, they left. They probably didn't even think about it maybe maybe they feel guilty about it later on but right now they're looking at we'll never see them again maybe they survived the war maybe they're sitting together in a little shack they built and are fishing the river and feel just fine about what they did you know i think that's what it might be and you're right it's it's a generational thing a generational cowardice that's going on all across westeros and war is increasing the sense of every man is for themselves every man is an island and that's just the death of what humanity means because the meaning of humanity is moving past that. Any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind and therefore never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. And mm-hmm. one of the reasons I like Gendry as a character is after teetering on the abyss in this chapter, he gets that in Storm of Swords when he says to Beric, I like you. I like what you're doing. I like that you're sticking up for people, giving them a trial. No one I ever met did this. I'm putting it all on the line for you, even though I know you can't really pay me and I'll probably get killed in the process. <laughs> he has decided he doesn't want to do this. He doesn't want to be like Tarber and Kutchak. He wants to be like Beric Dondarrion. But Beric Dondarrion is still a book away for Arya mm-hmm. and her companions. He's only a rumor at this point. He can't come to save them yet. So all you get at the end of this chapter is just is just more grimness. It's, I love this the slow horror movie tone of this chapter. It really hooked me on Riri with the Lannister men. It's just these monsters waiting at the end, but previewed the whole time. And like a lot of great horror movies, the the focus, the real chill, is on how group ties among humanity slowly dissolve. Hmm. And that that is best expressed throughout this chapter through the question of yielding. Lamy and Hot Pie want to surrender because they'll believe they'll be cared for and fed, saved. And this isn't purely childish, as adults in later Arya chapters will express shock and dismay at how the Lannisters are treating them, indicating that this is not the norm. And you will also see growing awareness that, ironically, only Beric's outlaws are attempting to uphold the mores and laws of Westeros. It's, it's this belief that, that the war is taking place on the surface, and that there is a real Westeros that is still there underneath that will assert itself any day now. <laughs> but what this chapter communicates is that real Westeros is not an actor, is not someone who can help you. 
It's an idea. It's a shadow on a wall. It only exists if everyone believes in it, and the Lannisters just don't. Moors don't enforce themselves. People do. And while George shows us the long-term costs of practicing power the way the Lannisters, Boltons, and Freys do, as you were saying earlier, that it always comes back to bite them in the ass for both thematic and just sheer geographical reasons, nothing shakes the sight of these starving kids' last illusions ripped away. Like when Hot Pie leaps up and yields, and he's surrounded by the bodies of the men they hung there. Do you, you don't think they yielded, Hot Pie? Yeah. Look at what the Lannisters did to them. Lamy and Hot Pie really seem to believe that Amory Lorch would have let them live if Yorn had just yielded. And while that is immensely frustrating for both Arya and us, because it's obviously not true, they're kids and they're starving. And you can understand the need for an organizing mental principle, some way that they can come up with to save themselves, even if it doesn't make any sense. Again, like Sansa, you need survival strategies. You need to recreate a version of power play in your own little world, even if it's ridiculous, because otherwise you will just end up like that woman who just kept saying, please, please please and none of these kids want to end up that way and that's why you get these these irrational spurts of emotion where Arya feels rage at Yorn even as she mourns him because these feelings are just the only outlet they get in this world that has reduced them to their most powerless state yeah you gotta live for something you can't just live you can't exist on acorn paste alone as you said last week on Sunset Chapter man is not meant to live by bread alone you know there's you know, but at the same time though Gendry it has the right of it. Maybe he has the maybe he feels like he has the right of it in terms of leaving the kids behind. But he definitely has the right of it here when he says knights and lordlings they take each other captive and pay ransoms, but they don't care if the likes of you yield or not. And you know, as much as George really turns up the medieval institutional horrors to eleven in A Song of Ice and Fire, historically speaking, Gendry and George are absolutely correct in what they're saying. Military historian John Keegan, who's an author that I really, really like, wrote in his excellent The Face of Battle, his 1989 book that you guys should all read if you really, really want to read good stuff about military history that goes beyond the kind of dry as dust academic stuff and the kind of the, the shit type of military history we have. He wrote about the Battle of Ashencourt. As the English continued to gain the upper hand, King Henry V received news that the French were attacking at the rear of his army and that French reinforcements were approaching. King Henry ordered that all French prisoners be put to the sword, an order his knights were reluctant to follow, as, if kept alive, these prisoners could bring a healthy ransom. So, <laughs> they they wanted to spare prisoners, the knights did, not because for any moral reason, but because they could bring them money in the same way that we're going to see in the kind of macro way of politics are playing and warfighting is playing out in Westeros. This is occurring with... Prisoner exchanges occurring between the Starks and the Lannisters in A Storm of Swords, and ransoms being offered as well to the Manderleys by Tywin Lannister to ransom back his son. You think you get through, it's it's pretty ingenious that George has this Arya chapter immediately following the Sansa chapter. It's not just there's there's a whole discussion in the Sansa chapter about the banner of of House Clegane, which is a big part of the Sansa chapter, then then immediately feeds into this Arya chapter here with Sansa observing the banner of, of Gregor Clegane being like, who is that? What banner is that? And the Reed be like, wait a minute, I should know exactly which banner that is because I just read the Sansa chapter. It's more of the thematic side. You know, Sansa yielded, in quotation marks, to Queen Cersei and she's living in a nightmare of court. She has survived the slaughter, but all of Ned's party, all of his men, his groomsmen, his guards, they all died save for Sansa and Jane. So <laughs> we're in the same situation now where Arya is, um, could be counted among the, the serving men, the groomsmen, the, the guards that Ned Stark had. And they're all, they're just 
they're they're meat for the butchers to to carve up and to utilize whoever they want to utilize. They're cattle, if you want to use a term from Fever Dream. They are the types of characters and people that the Lancers can do what they want with them because of their social and the, because of their social status in Westeros. They're able to be killed, sold into slavery, done whatever they want with because they don't merit the money or the time necessary in order to treat them adequately in a wartime setting. And even kids who are accustomed to being at the bottom of the pyramid in terms of Westeros, even kids who lived on the streets of King's Landing, just find it difficult to accept that there is no strategy by which they can survive, Mm -hmm. that there there really is nothing that that, that they can use as a fig leaf. And we see that over and over in in the series, like when there's that one Night's Watchman, I think his name is Maslin, at the Fist of the First One, who dies begging the zombies for mercy. Like they're zombies. They don't have mercy left in them. You know this, but your mind just snaps in that final moment and you cling to a belief that if you pull the blanket over your head, the monsters vanish. They can't see you. They can't hurt you. And Lamy and Hapai need that at the same way Sansa needs that. I agree that that's completely the comparison is you have this these forms that might let you live if you're noble, but even then only in a nightmare just have no regard for you at all. If you're not among the noble class, they don't even see you as a person. And so even as, as the kids scorn Yorin's failure, even as Hapai and Lamy say, Yorin got everyone killed. It was all Yorin's fault. The, the irony is they still want to believe the same thing he was trying to believe in. Mm-hmm. They still want to believe in a Westeros that will not murder them or leave them to starve, even though Tarber and Kutchak show them that's exactly what's happening. But that just drives them into another f- frightened state where they just, they need an adult. They need to find an adult who won't do this. And it's that, that distinct kids POV horror of none of the adults are trustworthy and none mm-hmm. of the adults will help you. The Lannisters are here to remorselessly strip all those protections away. And George built to that with all that horrible imagery that we were talking about before, the smell of corruption, the smell of meat. And it's like, yeah, the natural world perversely is doing okay. Like the Lannisters have burned a lot of it, but as you know, I mentioned, there's a lot of trees. The lake is doing fine. Arya sees those three black swans gliding along. Like, as she says, no one told them there was a war. They can just keep going. And it's, it's like the, the natural world's not going to save you. The political world is not going to save you. And even more heart-stopping, I think, what really just like slowed me down and made me stare off into the middle distance in this read was that little glimpse we get of the storehouse where the Lannisters are keeping people. Yeah. And like the door opens up for them to throw Gendry in and a boy runs out and doesn't make it. And Arya just hears this scream. And you, I was just flashback to my time as a f- first time reader and I realized all at once what the story is about now and what's about to happen and what they're about to see. And that storehouse is just a building. It's just a little building where they used to have like grain and wheat and now, now it's like a shy or Heron Hall, and those places broadcast their evil from miles away. Mm-hmm. And that has its own kind of power and literary resonance. But it's it's also important to show us how, how banal places can hide unimaginable horrors within. Like I think about, you know, I live in I live in Philly. I live in a big city. I go around a lot of different parts of it, and you look at buildings sometimes and think, or at least I do, that man, <laughs> how many buildings do we pass that play host to human trafficking? Like, you know, those mm. buildings are there. You know, every city has those buildings. They do. So which ones are they? Which, you can't tell by looking from the outside which crumbling brick building in this shitty neighborhood is hosting people who are being put through unimaginable hell feet away from you. You don't mm. know. And this, this storehouse gives you that same, kind of, that same kind of chilling feeling of Arya has stumbled upon hell in the middle of like a lake and a field and some swans. That little boy doesn't get away, but Weasel does. Does that make you feel good? I hope Weasel has a nice life, but you know what? It's all random. There's no control. There's no exit. None of them have any power. And that's that. Sh- this chapter just hammers that into your head and just makes it so brutal at the end with poor Lamy. 
It's so terrible to imagine something that was used for good in the past is now a host for horrors. I think, you know, it's it's it, you talked about the banality of, of evil and how like these bon- but I say banal, so I'm, I'm going <laughs> to fuck it up because you say a banal, but uh, or banal, uh, but I say banal because I'm a because I'm I'm a I'm a pleb plebeian like that. Um, but it's 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 so striking like that banality that of these buildings helps to illustrate the thematic point about the banality of evil, which is going to dominate Arya's latter half of her clash arc. You know, it's when we're coming up to Lamy Greenhead, striking how casual the mountains men are to the horrors and slaughters are performing on the innocents eating deer while the remains of human beings lie in chains next to them or hang from chains next to them. And yeah, you get, you know, Raph's famous think so line in response to Lamy saying that he had to be carried before running him through with his spear and then chuckling and making fun of Lamy after he's committed child murder. But it, it's more than Raph the Sweetling. It's more than the tickler's ordinariness as we find out in Arya 6 and 7. It's effervescent among this group of soldiers and among most of the Lancer soldiers, if we're being honest. This line struck me and reread uh, as, as Arya's after she's captured. She tried to bite. Her teeth snapped shut on cold, dirty chainmail. Oh, a fierce one, a man said, laughing. The blow from his ironclad fist near knocked her head off. You know, the banality of evil is more than a business casual of your Adolf Eichmanns or your good Germans just doing their jobs or following orders. It's also having a laugh while punching children in the fucking face, you know, with a mailed fist. Or later on in Arya 7, thinking that the rape and murder you and your leader performed was both awesome and a funny story that everyone has to laugh about. You know, that the George does a great job of illustrating the setting, using the banality of the setting to illustrate the banality of evil themes that he's going to be dealing with in later in all of Arya's story. But it's really, like, just heartbreaking and angering at the same time. It's like when Arya's feeling all those different emotions about the death of Yorn, I'm feeling sad and angry and heartbroken and rageful and all these different emotions because that's the way that George kind of writes the story that you want to feel all these things because at least I hope I have a shred of humanity left in me. With with characters like Euron or Ramsay or the Bloody Mummers, there's nothing banal about what they do, right? On purpose because their whole identity and reputation is built around soul-shaking acts of violence that stand out from the world around them. But what the banality does so powerfully here is it establishes this as a pattern, as something that's become ordinary. Because part of the issue you run into when you're, you're writing about horrible things is you run it, especially in wartime, you run into the conundrum of, as the line goes, a single death is a tragedy, a million is a statistic. How do you convey the death of and, and displacement and horror committed upon thousands of people? Just psychologically, mentally, that's difficult to convey. Even in nonfiction, let alone within the, mm-hmm. the, the confines of a fictional narrative. So part of how you do that is you lend individual atrocities this aura of standing in for thousands. The sense that, again, thousands of things like this are happening. There are thousands of Tarber and Cutjacks abandoning children. There are thousands of Lamy Greenhands being killed by thousands of Raph the Sweetlings. And you know that because George's writing it is so casual. This is just a day on the job. For Raph mm-hmm. the Sweetling, for Chiswick. They're not treating this like Euron preparing the blood sacrifice he's been preparing all his life. This is just nine <laughs> to five. This is normal. There was a Lamy yesterday and there'll be a Lamy tomorrow. And you understand that all at once just from, as you say, how George writes it, the casualness, the humor with which this is happening. And the sense that all, all the Riverlands is just being flushed down this abyss. And I was thinking... I was thinking about the the, the symbolism of, of this and the death of Lamy Greenhands, and then it, it took a, a very different direction. So, so stay with me, folks. Yes, uh, can't wait. 
there's obviously lots of symbolism going on with Lamy's death because he, like Bran, is this kind of wounded figure being carried around the, the land and seems to stand in for its fall and he's propped up against a tree and there's echoes of Odin and Jesus and Blood Raven and, you know, the, all, the, all those characters are there. And then he's killed. And so he says, oh, that represents the, the, the death of the land and we won't have renewal and the Fisher King is wounded. You know, there's all that, all that great structure, all that great symbolism. And then as I was thinking about that, part of me goes just like, but you know what? The land doesn't actually care about your symbolism. The land mm. doesn't actually die when the king dies because those swans are fine. They don't care about Robert. The rivers are still running. They don't actually care. Maybe that whole thing is just a story we like to tell ourselves because it tells us nature moves on our whims and our <laughs> wars. And maybe all of that is just a front. Maybe that's just a dead kid. And maybe there's something weird about us going, tutting over, oh, what's the symbolism of this murdered child? Like... <laughs> No, Lamy Greenhands isn't Odin. Just because he has Garth Greenhands' name doesn't mean he's a historical figure. He is still just a, a, a child being murdered. And I think a lot of, I think a lot of my favorite favorites art is is that which embraces that contradiction, which delves into the the symbolic resonant power of imagery, and also wants to cut through to the thing in itself. And I think you can see George struggling with both of those throughout the series that he wants to create these amazing fantasy tableau. But also create scenes like this that cut through those and just give you blunt, horrible realities. And uh, as we've been saying, the contrast and similarities with the Sansa chapters is, is very much the point. And very much what makes Clash of Kings so great is George working to create these scenes that have similar themes but approach that from different angles. And I think that that's really what makes it so effective. That was awesome, man. That's a, that's a very good. I mean, oh, I, I think like you know, I, I I say that, but I but I mean it too. It's pulling pulling that out was really good because I think that's exactly what George is going for in the story. And what even if he wasn't explicitly going for that, it's what we should be pulling out of it. That nature doesn't give a fuck about us. Doesn't give a fuck about human beings killing each other. Who is what banner is being waved there? The banner of House Clegane is being planted in the same ground that the banner of House Stark is being planted in horrors are occurring and we're making them occur and we try and give them meaning because nature is <laughs> we try to give them thematic and symbolic meaning when nature nature's like doesn't doesn't care doesn't care about us ultimately and that's so uh, it's like on the one hand yes you can see a fibonacci spiral in the pine cone or whatever but on the other <laughs> hand nature is also just like this screaming feral infant shitting on itself constantly you know what i mean like mm-hmm. i understand yeah. that on one hand you can look at nature through the lens of like brands chapters and it's all this divine system and it all works together and it's all cohabitating and it's beautiful on the other hand you can look at it it's just like everyone just eats their young and just the trees burn and it's just like we're being very bleak this episode but i think that's this chapter is pointing at a, at a philosophically grim conclusion on purpose like we've talked before about uh, the thin red line in the movies of terence malick and how the kind of he weaves nature in and you get like there's a huge battle scene in the thin red line where in the middle of all this carnage, just like a butterfly floats right across the lens, right visually, right in front of you, and just keeps going. And you're like, oh, yeah, butterfly doesn't care. Trees don't care. The grass doesn't care. And that fits so well in this chapter because it fits right in with nobody caring, with the adults abandoning Arya. And as you said early on, that sense of, of, of cooking meat mingling with corruption, that, that uh, we've reached the flip side of everything where it's, it's all going bad and all spoiling, and yet... As we've also mentioned throughout, it, this is just the beginning. Arya, Arya 6 is going to take us deeper into that black hole. Oh my gosh, yes. It will take us so much deeper into the black hole that is Harrenhal. So much fun. Actually, I can't fucking wait to get to Harrenhal. But the same place time, on Earth. Yes, yes. Cannot, oh boy, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a mood as, as, you're, 
as our friend Chloe might say. So I think that about wraps up for a depth section of this episode. Hope you guys have enjoyed that as much as you can. Uh, to kind of take us walk us into our foreshadowing groundwork section of this of the episode itself, we do have Lamy's fate. Yes, killed by Wrath the Sweetling. Guess who shows up in Bravos in the Winds of Winter in the so-called Mercy chapter, but Raph the Sweetling, guard to Sir Harry Swift the Blue Cock, out to try and ascertain a loan for the from the Iron Bank or a loan from Bravos on behalf of the Iron Throne. And Arya is never going to forget Lamy, and Arya is going to put her sword right. Well, I, what does he actually actually do? She um she she slits his thigh and he bleeds out. Right. Yeah. It's, oh. it's a particularly brutal move. And yeah, she even says, she repeats the, the things. That's, she slits his thigh because she, she wants to cripple him. So he has to ask, you got to carry me in the same way that Lamy did. And so then she says, think so. And that's the only time in the chapter she's referred to as Arya. It's a haunting moment because she's, she's seizing back her identity precisely by going back to her list. And yeah, you gotta love George, you know, keeping those, keeping those seeds in his back pocket. As always, we say there's no way he was thinking about that the entire time. But he, he always had Lamy, he always had Raph the Sweetling on the list, and he managed to bring those elements together really wonderfully in Mercy. So that's that's a great brick plot playing off there. Another mm-hmm. another element that will become much more prominent later on in Arya's story, as mentioned earlier, is Beric Dondarrion, whose name crops up once more. As the Lannisters mentioned, that horse son Dondarrion when, they, when they're <laughs> trying to get information out of the kids. Every time Beric is mentioned in these class chapters, it's always in the context of the Lannisters being unable to catch him. He is the object of Lannister's search just, just bobbing out of their reach. So he's a, he's a sign definitely of a little spark of hope in these Arya chapters because you get the sense that he's the, he's the one, as, as Arya says, if it, could, if it could die, the Lannisters had killed it. And, well, they have killed Beric. <laughs> but he, he just doesn't seem to die. So he's, he's the one part of the land kind of kind of fighting back. And even before you know him, that's just kind of the tone he's brought up in. Yeah, you mentioned earlier talking about all of the nat- about nature doesn't give a fuck. Well, nature is also repelling itself. Or Barracks and Darius repelling nature in the form of death over and over and over again in order to that's bring justice point. to these Lannister fucks who I can't wait for each and every one of them to die. And thankfully, most of them will die in Clash and Storm and the Winds of Winter. Absolutely. And finally, to take us a, to kind of like cheer us up a little bit, right? We have the name Weasel, who is well, the name that Lamy gives to the crying girl. Uh, that name it becomes one of Arya's monikers that she wears later in a Clash of Kings, as she realizes she can't use the name Arya anymore on the road to Harrenhal, or risk bringing further suspicion on herself. And the reason why is because Hot Pie, as they're being, um, as as they're being put in a wagon down for Harrenhal, he knows finds out that Arya is, is uh, using the bathroom as a uh, as a girl, so he she cannot use the name Arya anymore. And, you know, just to make it a little bit more happy and chipper at the end of this thing, the third name that she gives for her names in A Clash of Kings is the name Nymeria. She gives that to Bruce Bolton or Nan. Aw? Aw. Well, it is an inverse to her kill list in that these are the names she's trying to keep alive. These are the names of the people she wants to remember, but then as she discards them, you get the sense, oh, they, they died a second time. Weasel is gone for Arya when she gives up that name. Nymeria, she still thinks about, but when she she loses that name in Harrenhal, it's a sense of losing Nymeria a second time. And yeah, all those all those questions of, of death and loss and grief surround Arya. But the one kind of constant keeping her going through a lot of these chapters is, of course, Gendry. So to take us to our mm-hmm. discussion for the episode, I thought we'd talk about the Gendry-Arya relationship, because this chapter is a big leap forward for it. We get the scene we didn't really talk about where Gendry discovers that Arya, well, Gendry reveals that he's known for quite a while now that Arya is a girl and that's just a very very intimate taboo breaking moment for Arya because this is the secret she was trying to keep it's finally out and then it's not just that Gendry realizes is that Arya makes the decision to trust him like this is over the secret's out I need to keep him on my side 
And it's it's a very intimate moment for them. They have a nice little wrestling match afterwards. It's like the little <laughs> bubble of hope in this otherwise very grim chapter. So I thought it was a good chapter to talk about the Gendry-Arya relationship in general because it's one that George spends a lot of time on setting up in these early books, but it's very open-ended in terms of where it's going. So what do you think, Jeff? Do you think this relationship is is written well? How about in the show? And, and where, where do you think it's headed in the books? Well, I will say this. So I did listen to some of our earlier episodes before we came on air today, just kind of get a sense of who Arya Stark is as a character early on and where she is right now. And I do have to say, much, much better than John Arya. Is that the the way? Is that the uh, the shipping name <laughs> they have for that? Sure. That initial pitch idea of of John and Arya getting together and having a uh, a love triangle between John Tyrion over Arya Stark. So yes, Gendaria, much, much better than John Arya. And in Clash, it's it's a juvenile relationship, you know, as we're going to find out later in, in Clash of Kings. It's kind of like Arya's looking at Gendry and be like, yeah, he's hot. And that's that's great. You know, you know, I get the sense that Arya is enjoying Gendry's, quote, bristly beard coming in as she thinks or bristly fierce beard coming in as she thinks in this chapter. And she's always thinking and saying how strong Gendry is. And later in Clash, Arya is going to just love to look at a shirtless Gendry at the forge at Harrenhal, who is on the cusp of being muscled like a man's fantasy as his father was in his prime and their interactions after Gendry outs Arya as a girl are cute I mean they're kind of cute right it's kind of like kid teasing flirting wrestling you know the way that you know some of us might have used to do with uh with girls that we fancied in her time and that's totally fine that Arya is mostly attracted to Gendry's physical attractiveness and that the relationship is kind of cutesy Arya's a juvenile guys Gendry's a teenager and hell it's fine to be an adult and be attracted to people's physicality too this is America after all but Arya is not going to stay juvenile forever, as we all know. And as we talked about when we covered Arya 1 to 3 a few months ago, George did comment on the future of Arya and Gendry. And I'll just read the quote to remind you guys. So at Balticon in 2016, uh, someone reports, My friend asked George about Gendry and Arya meeting back up and when will Arya get her moon blood, to which George answered soon. And George had an interesting response to Arya and Gendry meeting back up. I will let her tell you the answer, but I do know he said of Arya and Gendry that, quote, I'll visit them again. So we do get a version of this in season eight of Game of Thrones. And you have to ask yourself, is it going to be similar in the books? Maybe, probably. At least I think they'll have sex. Though I think it's more likely that Edric Storm will be granted Storm's End. So I think Gendry proposing marriage to Arya based on him becoming Lord of Storm's End won't happen in the same way that happened in the show. But ultimately, I, I think the relationship is done well. I mean, it's, it's the context of two juveniles who are forming a bond based on difficult circumstances and that adversity can sometimes lead to romantic feelings developing t- between people and i i, I kind of like it you know i when you when you put this up in the document originally i was like eh, it's fine i guess but then i kind of read through all of Arya's class chapters and into a little bit into her storm interactions with Gendry. And i'm like i like it i actually do like it it's cutesy it's nice it's it's such a contrast to this fucking chapter though i mean this <laughs> like having well again it's it's, the, it's, nice. it's the oasis it's the one thing that keeps Arya tethered to humanity and I, I like the little little nuances of the relationship and how it develops. As I said, it changes with Gendry's development because as he starts developing his own keener sense of politics, that only draws him further and further away from Arya because Arya will always be a partisan in these wars. She cannot not pick a side. She cannot really be part of something like the Brotherhood because of how tied she is to House Stark. And that's a strong tension between her and Gendry starting in this chapter when he realizes mm-hmm. not just that she is a girl, which he's fine with, he's teasing her about, but then, he, oh, you're a highborn girl? And then suddenly he's terrified. Like, I'm so sorry, milady. And again, that's not rational. Like, they're about to starve to death. You really think Arya mm-hmm. gives a damn, Gendry? Like, look at her. Her, her you know, her nails are, are covered in in soot and dirt and her feet are hard and her clothes are torn she's she's not exactly living up to that image but 
It's just been beaten into Gendry, literally, that this is how you behave. Remember book one in Tobomat's forge when, like, he dared assert right to his own property and Tobomat <laughs> was heard to beat him on the spot because he disrespected Ned Stark? Like, this is the world that Gendry lives in, and that always taints his relationship with Arya, and there's a real sadness to that when it starts to drive them apart in the Storm of Swords. But the, the other aspect I really like about this is coming off Sansa 2 and thinking about how that played with imagery of chivalry is Arya and Gendry as a chivalric romance story because like you know hmm. they take up with a band of outlaws and they're for some opposite sides opposite sides of the class structure and Arya is posing as a peasant and Gendry is a prince who doesn't know he's a prince and you know you, you see all <laughs> the great imagery and tropes of the kind of songs and stories that Sansa would love but with this added element of them being really too young to explore their feelings in a proper healthy way so you just get uncomfortable scenes like when they're at the brothel in storm of swords and the one girl's hitting on gendry and he doesn't really want to do it but then later he says he's going to go have sex just to make Arya mad and Arya just feels unhappy about it and that's that's because that's not because Arya and gendry are bad people who can't forge a relationship it's because of the age they are in the situation they're in and i like that that it's a dose, I think, of realistic emotional problems in a story that could have been done in a very glossy, high fantasy, chivalric hmm. way. And in some ways, and I'm not the first person to say this, in some ways, I, I think it's like we're getting kind of a version of Lyanna and Rhaegar here, in like, in hmm. like, in a, a, a much more kind of childish and and like scaled down way. In terms of uh, the way, I just think the way Arya feels about Gendry. Is if like if Liana actually did have feelings for Robert, like that's <laughs> that's kind of what we're seeing. But so like transfer those feelings over to Rhaegar. Like it's Arya and Liana have a lot in common, as Ned said. But I think it's interesting that if put in her aunt situation, I feel like Arya would choose Robert. Or I guess I, I think that's what we're being shown, kind of. I think they. I, I like that a lot. I mean, I think that Gendry's like a. You know, we talked about. I keep referencing this, but we talked about this in our, our Robert's Rebellion episode. That the best part about Robert is his bastard children, who are yep. all pretty awesome, all all the same, and. You know, I, I think Gendry is is a pretty interesting version of Robert, one that didn't have all of the advantages that Robert has, and exactly. look at all of the, the 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 qualities that he brings to the table not being given everything. That that that's good, and I think I, I like your idea about it being Lyanna and, and Rhaegar or Lyanna and Robert working out. I think that that could be the case. Um, I, I, maybe possibly, maybe Gendry goes sailing with Arya at the end of the story. Maybe because she doesn't have a claim on any lordship or lands or anything like that. That would be a cool thing for them to go off together, sail into the sunset. Agreed, and I agree. He's got no no real claim next to Edric Storm, nor any particular interest in it. And this is where the show, while I applaud some of the decisions they made, I think ultimately screwed themselves because I totally get it combining Gendry and Edric Storm in season three. That makes sense. You don't really want to have two bastards of right. Robert Baratheon. You can just shove him off into that plot. But the problem is, is then Gendry loses what becomes a big driving motivation for him in the books, which is the Brotherhood and R'hllor specifically. Like, that's what his mm. plot gets involved in. And he sticks with the, the hardcore Stoneheart faction of the Brotherhood. So presumably, his story going forward, I think, is, is Arya getting him out of that and back mm. towards, like, a, a more kind of, you know, at-peace direction together. Whereas, yeah, the Lord of Storm's End plot, that seems destined for Edric Storm. Even if it happens outside the confines of the narrative, like it's just alluded to, happens afterward or elsewhere in the story. Because he's noble on both sides, and everyone loves him, and he lived at Storm's End forever. And that, I think, is where I, why I think it felt kind of shoehorned with Gendry in the last couple seasons with, and he's back, and he has a hammer now, and he'll be Lord of Storm's End. <laughs> it's just plot points kind of being thrown at the wall. Because I think those didn't really... So what I'm saying is, while I like the Gendry-Edric combination choice in season three, I think it bore it bore bad ramifications for season eight, because that's when the differences between Gendry and Edric matter more, you know what I mean? 
Yeah, it was kind of fan service here at the very end with the, yeah. the hammer and everything like that and him showing back up and being like, oh, yeah, now Arya's interested in him again. And you're like, you know, in the books, it's very much more like deliberate. And, and I think that when they come back together, it's going to be less like, let's throw these interesting characters together in a room and find out what happens when you have Gendry and Arya back together at Winterfell and at the Forge again. And we're recreating the scene from season two where his shirt is off and he's at the Forge. And I think it's going to be done. I think that. Well, I think with most things, I think George is going to do a better job of wrapping some of these plot lines up and some of these relationships up specifically. I think he writes them really well as kids. I can't wait to see what they're like as adults. I agree. I think that the structure is much clearer and stronger. I, I, can, I think you can see emotionally where Arya and Gendry are going to go. And that's I think that's a sign of a well-written relationship between children when you can see the shape of a relationship between adults forming. That means it's a good relationship. It's well-written. Agreed there. So I think that about wraps up for Clash of Kings Aria 5. As always, thank you everyone for listening to us, uh, for bearing with us as we go through this horrible of all horrible chapters. Not our last horrible Aria chapter, though. Sorry Not to say. Not by a long shot. Wait for Aria 6, 7, 8, and then it gets a little bit better in 9, and then it's... And then immediately sort of... much worse in 10. ten. Right. So yeah, it's, it's, it's skeletons all the way down. It sure certainly is. And if you have the chance, please rate reviews on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify, anywhere and everywhere you find our podcasts. We appreciate all of you guys' reviews you've been leaving for us. It helps people find us. It also makes us feel good, and I appreciate that especially. Check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacast A-S-O-I-A-F. Follow us on Twitter at notacast A-S-O-I-A-F, or shoot us an email at notacast A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. You can find me at Quentin on Twitter or at poorquentin.com. And you can find me at Brendan Beefish on Twitter, Brendan Beefish on Reddit, and my website is Wars and Politics, Vice and Fire. We want to shout out and thank our high lords and ladies on Patreon Lord of the Squishers and Warden of the Deep, Lord Clint Esquire, the Wolf in the West, Lady Veneris of the House Colgarian, the first of her name, the overworked Queen of the Pencils, the Eraser in the First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devotee of the Great Game of Thrones, Portraitist of the Realm, Lady Realist of the Seven Kingdoms, Creator of Arts and Maker of Drawings. Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Eastwood of Introvert Isle, Septon Meribald, the Shoeless Sage, Lady Madeline Rivers, just a CR of the Trident, Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood, Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North and Keeper of Secrets, Sandy the Dragon, Blood of Queen Daenerys and the Lady of Jameson, Lady Brit, Bastard Mistress of Harrenhal, Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood, Sir Tim, the Knight who was guided by voices, Sir Courtenay, what did the five fingers say to the face Penrose, Lady Dillsdale, the Star Spear of Crescent Hill, Sir Way of Course, Matt, Warden of the Sanguine Shore, and Prince Matthew of House Targaryen, Proud Soy Boy of Summer Hall, Defender of the Fifth Book, Warden of the Shy Maid Chapters, and Swing Dancer with Dragons. Thank you as always to our High Lords and Ladies. Absolutely. Thank you guys very, very much for your support. So, join us next week as we head back to King's Landing. Surprise, surprise. Yet again in A Clash of Kings, Tyrion 5. Yeah, George, we get it. Tyrion, you love him. He's your favorite. And to make things just a little bit better, our this will be our next live episode. So we will see you guys, as many of you guys who can possibly make us, on YouTube, on our YouTube channel, on Monday, December 9th at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Those Tyrion chapters are a lot of fun to do live. They just dance between all the plots and just harvest out all the little details together. So, yes, we'll see you there on Monday at 8.30 for another great Tyrion chapter. Yes, indeed. But thank you very much for listening. Thank you so much to our patrons for supporting us. And we will see you guys literally next week.